Thank you for those kind words, Pastor Tim. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6 today, verses 16 to 19. If you would like to turn there, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. And I just realized I made a humongous mistake. I did not bring my reading glasses up here, so pardon me a moment. You know, I've learned when you cross, cross the 60 threshold, glasses matter. I am now officially in that category. So we're going to be in Proverbs six sixteen to 19, and you can follow along with me as I read. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. I don't know about you, but we live today in a rather strange world. Would you agree? About a year ago, I found myself bored at home, so I decided to tune into that bastion of Christian conservative thought known as the television show that goes by the title The View, and there I watched Whoopi Goldberg the great apologist for the Christian faith, lecture people about abortion. And she had two things to say. She said, first of all, nowhere in the Bible does the word abortion appear. The Bible don't even talk about it, to use her grammar. And then she said this, if you are going to judge people, you are wrong. You should not tell people abortion is wrong. Who are you to judge? Now, of course, right away you can see the problem, right? In saying we shouldn't judge, what was Whoopi doing? Judging. So you can right away see the problem with her argument being self-refuting. But what she was advocating there is what our culture has bought into. It's what drove many voters in Michigan to support something like Proposal 3. This idea that there's no right or wrong that can be known on an issue like abortion. In fact, the title of the message today is The Sin of Abortion, Its Gravity, Its Resolution, and Its Demands. And as soon as you say abortion is a sin, you can imagine the pushback you're going to get. People are going to say things exactly as Whoopi did. Who are you to judge? And who are you to impose your article of faith on others who have a different view? as if somehow the absence of agreement means nobody's right. But notice this idea that faith in our culture today is not the biblical view of faith, which is trust based on evidence. It's a blind leap in the dark. When people like Whoopi talk about faith, here's what they mean. You believe in spite of evidence. It's not trust based on evidence. It's a blind leap in the dark. I'll give you an example of how this works out. I had faith the jet plane would get me here from Atlanta when I flew here on Friday afternoon. I looked up in the cockpit, there were two guys in uniform with thousands of hours of flying experience. I was on a reputable airline. Delta stands for don't expect luggage to arrive, but you will. And my faith though was not a blind leap in the dark. I apologize to all you Medallion Sky members out there, but that the idea was that my faith was grounded in something I had good reason to believe. And as Christians, we have faith that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, but it's not blind faith. 
But as soon as you bring ethics or religion into the, into the discussion in today's culture, people think you're just imposing your blind religious view. And as Christians, we're going to have to be clear on what we believe and why we believe it. I was also puzzled by Whoopi's remark that the Bible is silent on abortion. She was basically saying, nowhere does the Bible mention the word abortion. Nowhere will you see it said, thou shalt not have an abortion. You know what? She's right about that. But I wanted to ask Whoopi a question. I'd like to ask her a lot of questions, to be honest. But if any of you have a way to get me on the view, I'm all in, all right? But I wanted to ask her this question. Whoopi, are you saying that whatever the Bible does not expressly condemn, it allows? And of course, she would have to say no. For example, where in the Bible does it say, thou shalt not use neighbor for shark bait? It's not in there. Now, if you think that gives you permission to do it, please come see me or Pastor Tim before the service ends. We do need to counsel you a little bit. Just because scripture doesn't expressly mention something does not mean it permits it. So we as Christians need to be clear on what does the Bible say about abortion. And I'm going to preach today with the assumption that, number one, the word abortion does not appear in Scripture. And that's right, it does not. And number two, that even if the Scripture does not expressly say the unborn are human, we can still know abortion is wrong. And I want to start today by saying that, number one on your your outline there is, The shedding of innocent blood is particularly egregious in Scripture and represents a preeminent moral crisis. And that is what we just saw in Proverbs 6. Throughout Scripture, we see the shedding of innocent blood presented as something that is particularly dreadful in God's eyes. Now, right away, there can be Christians who are well-intentioned who say things like this. Why are we singling out a particular sin? All sin is sin, isn't it? I mean, why say one is worse than another? All sins are the same. That is not a biblical worldview. It is true that all of us in this room today equally share a sin nature. We are all by nature, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, dead in our sins outside of Christ. We are rebels against our creator. All of us equally share that sin nature. But here's the key distinction a lot of people overlook. The sinful acts that spring from that sinful nature are not all morally equivalent. For example, I think all of us here today know that there's a difference between stealing a postage stamp and murder or stealing a pencil And assaulting someone unjustly. I think we know that there's a difference between those acts. And the Bible clearly designates certain things as being particularly egregious and representing a preeminent moral crisis. And the shedding of innocent blood is one of them. If you look, for example, at Psalm 94, 21... Or excuse me, if you look at Psalm 106, 37 to 41, the psalmist says this, speaking of the children of Israel... They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, the Lord says this, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 3, 
The Lord says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wickedness. In other words, in Scripture, we see over and over again this idea that the shedding of innocent blood represents something very serious in the mind of God. In uh, Revelation 14, or excuse me, 16, verses 4 to 6, we get the, the, the story of the angel who is speaking and bringing forth the bowls of wrath. And here in the New Testament, we read, And I have heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just as you are, O Holy One, who is and was, or you, you who brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Deuteronomy chapter 19, the Lord gives his people the charge to purge the guilt of innocent blood from their midst so that it will be well with them. This is throughout scripture. I could go on and on with scriptures. I'll just stop with those right there. But we see that the idea that the shedding of innocent blood is a very serious thing in the mind of the Lord. And that raises the question we need to look at today. Is abortion the shedding of innocent blood? Because if it is, these scriptures that speak about the shedding of innocent blood being a serious thing means that abortion is a serious thing, even if Whoopi Goldberg would like to tell us it's not. And so let's ask the question, are the unborn human beings? And if they are, the commands against shedding innocent blood are going to apply to them as they do anyone else. Now, when somebody tells you that nowhere does the Bible say that the unborn are human and nowhere does it say you can't have an abortion, I want to give you an argument that can be very clearly stated that you can use to show that the Bible is indeed pro-life, even if other people want to push that off as being just personal opinion. Here's the biblical teaching on abortion. Premise one, all humans have value because they bear the image of God. Genesis 1 teaches this in the Old Covenant. James 3 teaches it in the New. What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Here's what it means. We are not valuable. We don't have a right to life because of something we can do performance-wise. In other words, we're not image bearers because we're self-aware or because we're more intelligent than others or somehow more physically developed than others. What gives us our value is simply that we are image bearers. All human beings equally bear the image of God. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Premise 2 follows directly from that. Because humans bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood, meaning the intentional killing of an innocent human being, is strictly forbidden. Scripture is very clear we are not to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Exodus 23, 7 teaches that. Proverbs 6 that we just read teaches that. Matthew 5 teaches that in the New Covenant. Throughout Scripture, we see that. That leaves us, men and women, with only one question to ask. Are the unborn human? Because if they are, then these same commands against the shedding of innocent blood apply to them as they do all of us. And sure enough, we know from the science of embryology that from the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of your hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and develop. So therefore, we know what the unborn are. 
We know scientifically they are one of us. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, that's good, but our critics are out there saying, fine, the unborn are human life, but they're not persons. They're only biological life. When anybody says to you that the unborn are human, but not persons, here's what I want you to ask them. What's the difference? Have you ever met a human that wasn't a person? Those of you with teenagers do not raise your hands right now. But you get the idea. Have you? Why should we believe there can be such a thing as a human being that's not a person? I love it when people say to me, well, you know, it, it's possible they're not fully human yet till they're, old, they're older. And I say, well, help me out with something. How is it possible for two human parents to create offspring that isn't human but later becomes so? How is that even possible? If you'll pardon me quoting the, the great philosopher Ricky Ricardo, they have some splaining to do at this point. How do you get two human parents creating offspring that isn't human, but magic somehow becomes so later on? And the answer is, that ain't going to happen. We know what the unborn are. And those that want to say, well, they're not persons yet because they differ from us, are really missing the point. The question is not, do human embryos and fetuses that all of us once were differ from what we are today? They do, but do they differ in ways that justify killing them? That's the thing. You listen to people in the media, in popular culture, and they love to assert all kinds of things. The unborn don't have value because they're not self-aware. I mean, fill in the blank with a hundred different arbitrary traits they pick out. They're not self-aware. They're not as developed as you and I are. They, they can't see themselves existing over time. Whatever they pick out, notice a couple of things. It's totally arbitrary. Who made up those rules? And none of us in this room today share those things equally. In fact, I'm going to have you do an exercise that uh, I had the group do yesterday. I'm going to have you in just a minute look around the room and stare at some people. Don't do it yet, but in just a minute I'm going to have you do it. Young folks, if you're here and you're single and you're thinking, man, I saw some nice looking young lady over there that I'm hoping is very godly and I'd love to make eye contact with her. This is going to be your God sanctified moment in the service to make eye contact. Okay. Those of you that are married, I trust you know where to look. And if you don't, you need to come see me after the service. Okay. One, two, three, go stare at some people. Give them the eye. Look around. Don't laugh. I met my wife this way. 38 years. This could work. All right, some of you are having entirely too much fun with this. Question, what makes us equal as image bearers? As you were looking around the room staring at people, are we all physically equal? No, we're not. I can tell you at age 63, I cannot play basketball like I could at age 23. In fact, I've been asked to go back to my high school this fall to participate in an alumni reunion and I've been asked to jump on the basketball team with the alums to play the current basketball team in a game. I did that three years ago at the age of 60, and uh, my wife has told me in no uncertain terms am I ever going to do that again, because at my age I have only one goal for that basketball game, avoid hospitalization, right? And as I'm looking around the room today, I see a lot of young guys and gals who could totally dust me in a one-on-one -on -one basketball game. Their physical development is far beyond my own right now, which has receded quite a bit. But men and women, listen to this. If Planned Parenthood is right, that we can dismember and intentionally destroy 
a living human fetus because it's not as developed as you and I are, if it's development that gives us our value and you've got more of it than I do, you have a greater right to life than me and human equality is out the window. Are we all equally self-aware right now? How many of you had coffee before coming to church? Raise your hands. I'm an agnostic before my first cup in the morning, so don't feel bad if you raise your hand. All right. Those of you with your hands up, you're firing on all cylinders right now. You were belting out the songs. You're tracking with the sermon. You're right there with me. Those of you that had waffles and pancakes and no coffee, you're about to enter the carb coma zone. You're right there. You're this side of comatose right now. We are not all equally self-aware at this moment. But yet, if Peter Singer is right, the ethicist at Princeton University, that we can kill a human fetus and kill a human newborn because neither is self-aware, if he's right that self-awareness is what gives you value and a right to life and you've got more of it than me, then human equality is out the door because you've got a greater right to life than me. This is the sad reality of defining human beings outside a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview makes sense. When you were looking at each other a few minutes ago, you know what makes us all equal? It's not our abilities. It's not what we can do functionally. It's the fact that everybody in this room equally has the same human nature. And that human nature doesn't come in degrees like self-awareness or physical development. Your human nature was there from the moment you began to exist, from the one cell stage. And as Christians, we know that that nature bears the image of our maker. We can account for human equality if we ground human equality in our common human nature. The secular world that drove the, um, the disastrous results of Proposal 3 has a different view. The only people who count are those who can function at a certain level. We as Christians need a better narrative for human equality, and we've got one. So as we look at Scripture, it's clear the unborn are human from the moment of conception, and they have value from the moment of conception, not because of performance issues, but because of whose image they bear. We are all more more or less self-aware, more or less developed, more or less cognizant of pain, but that doesn't mean our human nature and our identity varies like our traits vary. That's the biblical view. We have confidence in human equality because of whose image we bear. That's the clear teaching of scripture. The second point we need to look at is that the forgiveness for the shedding of innocent blood requires the shedding of innocent blood. This is seen throughout Scripture. One of the saddest things I hear whenever I talk on abortion is this. I get done speaking at an event, and somebody comes up to me. It sometimes is a man. It's sometimes a woman who's participated in abortion. And they take my hand, and they look at me with tears in their eyes, and they say the following. I totally agree with everything you just said. I'll never be able to forgive myself for what I did. And of course, it's painful to hear them say that. You, you, you feel their pain and you, you, you feel their, their, their hurt for what they did. But they're actually saying something that is true. They can't forgive themselves. In fact, none of us can forgive ourselves. Biblically understood, we have not sinned against ourselves. We've sinned against our maker. We need a forgiveness that comes from outside of us. And our culture is trying to tell everybody that will listen that they should shout their abortion. You've heard this phrase, I'm sure. You see pictures on social media now with women wearing t-shirts that say, in some cases, I've had 15 abortions and I'm proud of it. 
And there's a whole campaign out there called Shout Your Abortion where you are supposed to broadcast proudly how many abortions you've had and pretend that nothing's wrong. Well, the biblical solution is very different. We don't look within ourselves to find solution for our guilt. We trust in a God who justifies the ungodly. And I want to give you two examples of this from Scripture. First is in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, you can uh, follow along there or you can just listen, whatever you prefer. In Isaiah chapter 6, the most holy man in all of Israel, God's prophet Isaiah, gets a vision of the exalted Lord on, on high. And he sees God on his throne with the angels attending to him. And they're saying, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the prophet is terrified by this vision. It absolutely undoes him. In fact, he says, woe is me, for I have seen the Lord on high, and I am a man of unclean lips. You know, this sort of runs against what a lot of people try to tell us in evangelicalism today, that we all ought to just view God as this person we have this intimate, quiet time with every day and that we feel nice things about as we're reading our devotionals in the morning. And I, I, I'm all for studying God's word in the morning, but it needs to grip us that even the most holy man in Israel, who was God's designated prophet, when he caught just a glimpse, a vision of the Most High God, it absolutely terrified him in light of his own sinfulness. And he says, woe is me, I am undone. And it's interesting the solution that comes for his sinful condition at that point. The prophet can't muster anything up inside him to deal with the fact that God is righteous and he is not. Instead, God provides the solution for his unholiness. He sends an angel who brings a hot coal to purify the prophet's lips in the vision. And only then can the prophet stand in the presence of this holy God. In the, in the book of Romans, New Testament, Paul gives us an example in Romans chapter 4 of Abraham. Abraham, the man who the Jews viewed as the most holy icon of their faith. And back then in first century Judaism, it was very common to teach people at synagogue and elsewhere that they should look to Abraham not only as the father of their faith, but as the model for how they should become virtuous. In their mind, Abraham exemplified holy living. He was holy in virtue of how he lived. And Paul in Romans 4 blows that notion right out of the water when he says that Abraham believed God and it was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, Paul is making the argument that when you look at Abraham, as was true of Isaiah, there wasn't anything in Abraham that made him commendable to God. What made him commendable to God is that God counted him as righteous in virtue of Abraham's faith. Well, that's very different than trying to work out your own salvation by somehow saying, I can forgive myself or I can somehow prove I'm good enough and I don't have to worry about uh, somehow God saving me from my sin. The Bible is very clear. We need an outside righteousness. I love what Paul says here in Romans 4. Listen to what he says. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's Romans 4, 4 to 5. 
In other words, we are declared righteous as sinners who believe in Jesus. We are not made righteous. This is where we differ from our Catholic friends. Our Catholic friends teach that we are infused with righteousness. We are literally made righteous, and that's what makes us okay to God. The problem with that view, I think you can see it. If I'm infused with righteousness, I can lose it because I'm not a righteous guy. I'm not a good guy, which means that which God gives, I could end up fumbling away with my own stumbles and my own bad choices and my own sins. What Paul is saying here is, though, that the God of the universe, the judge of the universe, is declaring sinners righteous in virtue of his son. But that raises a a big question. Outside of his son's righteousness, how can a holy God declare unrighteous people righteous? If God is holy, he cannot just push sin under the rug. He can't just sweep it away. He can't just wink at it. He can't just say, well, no big deal. I'm going to just wink at this this time, but don't do it again. A holy God who is absolutely righteous in his character must deal with sin. And men and women, he does. And, but the question is, how? And the answer is found in Romans 3, verses 21 to 25. And I'm going to read those in just a moment. Here's the context of Romans 3, because it helps us understand what the true fix is for people who've sinned on the issue of abortion. In Romans 1 and 2, Paul lays out a devastating critique of the human race. He talks, first of all, about the Gentile world suppressing the truth of God that they know through nature. They don't acknowledge it. They suppress it. They're evil. They're not righteous. Then he turns to the believing Jewish world and says, you know, they have the oracles of God, but they don't live them out. They talk a good talk, but they don't live it. They're lost. So Gentiles are lost. Jews are lost. And then in Romans 3, verse 20, Paul concludes with this. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and turned away. All are in rebellion against God. And so what do we do with that? Because if it's true that there's none righteous, we face a real conundrum. Here's what it is. The Bible is clear that without righteousness, no one gets into the kingdom of God. It then says there is none righteous. Uh Uh-oh, now what do we do? Well, here's the answer in Romans 3, verses 21 to 25. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, get ready for a big word, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show that God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. What does this word propitiation mean that we see in verse 25? It means essentially this, to pacify or to turn away the wrath of God. That's the basic word of this. It's interesting that in the pagan world of Paul's day and earlier, pagan worshipers would try to bribe their gods to turn away their anger toward them. They would try to present offerings, including sometimes their own children, who they would sacrifice to these gods in an effort to turn away their rage against humans. But Paul here gives a totally different answer. 
Unlike the pagan world where we try to bribe a deity, the very God we have offended provides the propitiation we need. Put simply, the righteousness God demands is the righteousness he alone provides by sending Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. I know this sounds very technical, but it will explain in a minute why this is so important for post-abortion men and women. When I encounter post-abortion men and women, and they say to me, I can't forgive myself, you know what I say to them? You don't need an excuse. You need an exchange. You need Christ's righteousness for your sinfulness. That's the idea of propitiation. Jesus comes dies on the cross in our place, absorbs the wrath of God in our behalf, and sits and stands there taking the judgment of God every one of us in this room deserves so that those that trust in him are clothed in his righteousness and God now judges that post-abortion man and woman like he judges everyone who puts faith in Jesus. He judges them not on the basis of their sinful lives, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness that they are now clothed in. This is the great exchange the reformers spoke of. You see it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an amazing passage. And it's easy to think, well, how could that ever apply to me? I'm really, I'm a rascal. How could God ever clothe me in his, his righteousness when I've done so many things? And I think there's an example here that can help from Martin Luther. Martin Luther allegedly taught that justification, being declared righteous by God the Father in virtue of Jesus, can be likened to the covering of a dunghill. And if you'll pardon a rather coarse illustration, Luther was known for these, just so you know. Um, Luther said that our relationship to God the Father, our sinful condition in the sight of God the Father, can be likened to a dunghill. And here's what Luther meant. In 14th century Europe, throughout the fall season, the countryside would be covered in these piles of dung, animal refuse. And it was unsightly, it stunk, it was a stench that went throughout the land. I mean, it was not a pretty thing to look at or smell. And Luther said justification is like the first snowfall of winter that covers the dung hills in a perfect blanket of white snow. And Luther said if you want to understand justification, there it is. That's the, the model. He wasn't saying human beings are dunghills. He was saying our sinful condition is. And the way we need to understand being right with God is not something intrinsic with us. We drum up because there's nothing there to commend us to God. Rather, what makes us right with God is that covering, that white covering of Christ's righteousness. The dunghill is still a dunghill intrinsically, but men and women, now it's been covered. That's the hope for post-abortion men and women. Not that they can shout their abortion and just excuse it or try to forgive themselves through resources they can muster up of their own righteousness. The basis of their confidence before God is, is that if they have believed in the Savior, he has covered them in his righteousness, and now they are judged on the merits of Christ, not their own merits. By the way, that's the hope for all of us. It's what we sang about a few moments ago, singing about Christ, our hope in life and death. It's our only hope, all of us, 
to be covered in that righteousness. That's what propitiation is talking about. But there is a third principle that um, we need to be clear on, and that is that the shedding of innocent blood requires a response from us. It is not something we can just overlook. In Proverbs 24.11, we are told to rescue those being led away to death. And if we pretend we didn't see it, God is going to hold us accountable. We are not going to be judged lightly for overlooking the shedding of innocent blood. Those of us that are believers have a duty to do something about it. What is it we should do? Well, the first thing we need to do is make sure we're grounded biblically on what the Bible teaches about the shedding of innocent blood. But I think there's something else we need to be able to do. We need to equip ourselves to engage people out there who don't understand the pro-life view and think that we're just a bunch of blind faith addicts because we say abortion is wrong. How do we communicate our pro-life views to those people in order to help rescue the unborn? I'm going to tell you something. You know why Proposal 3 passed in Michigan? It wasn't because of ballot initiative language that was unclear. People love to say that. Oh, the language was unclear. People didn't know what they were voting for. No, that wasn't it. It wasn't that our marketing campaign was bad. You know why people voted for it? Because they disagree with us on our view about the life of the unborn. It's a worldview problem we have. It's not a marketing problem. And that means you and I, every one of us in this room today that professes faith in Jesus Christ and is committed to a biblical worldview, we have to know how to communicate our pro-life beliefs to people out there that don't share our values. So one of the things that can help you is if you know how to do that in a minute or less. And before you leave church today, you're going to know how to defend your pro-life view in a minute or less. In fact, we're going to lock the doors. Nobody's leaving until you do it. Call the roadhouse. You're going to be late for lunch until you can recite this, all right? How can you defend what you believe on abortion in a minute or less? So indulge me in a thought experiment. I want you to imagine it's Thanksgiving. And I don't know how your house is at Thanksgiving, but at our house, we have extended family members who are not believers, but they come to our home during the holidays. And they don't share my pro-life view, some of them. They don't, they're not Christian They don't believe as I do, but we have them at our table. I want you to pretend you have an Aunt Betty who does not share your Christian worldview, who does not share your belief that the Bible is God's word, and definitely doesn't share your belief on abortion. And she's trying to be polite. She's eating her turkey and stuffing, and between bites of turkey and stuffing, finally she just has to ask you. She puts her fork down and says as politely as she can, Now why are you pro-life? Here's what you're going to say in a minute or less, and I challenge you to time me. Go ahead and start your phones if you want to. Here is what you should say in a minute or less to convey your pro-life view to Aunt Betty. Start your clocks. Aunt Betty, I'm pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and develop. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that justifies killing you back then. Differences of size, 
level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then but not now. Now, I'm going to guess I got that done in under a minute. Does anybody know how quick I got that done? I'm going to guess 44 seconds because that's generally the average. Okay, I'm slow on the basketball court at 63, but that was rocking it. How many Bible verses did I cite? None. But did I communicate the truth of Scripture? Yes, I did, men and women. And that's your job. And can I give you some good news today? I think we look at the secular culture around us and we think this is overwhelming. No one is ever going to fall to their knees and say, wow, you're right. I'm wrong. Thank you for straightening out my, my twisted thinking. By the way, you don't do that in your marriages. If you've been married 20 years or more, put your hands up. Okay. Those of you that just put your hands up, boy, those went down quick. Um, those of you that have been married 20 years or more, when you're in an argument with your spouse and you are winning, every rational mind in the universe knows you're winning. The Lord knows you are winning. And your spouse is listening. Does your spouse ever change the subject on you? I'm seeing some head noddings. How about you when you're losing? Have you ever changed the subject? And the answer is yes. You know why? Because it's painful to admit we're wrong. And we look at people and we think, well, when I share my faith, whether it's evangelism, if the gospel or pro-life, people aren't dropping to their knees and saying the sinner's prayer right in front of me. That must mean I'm failing. No. Can I let you in on a secret? Whether you're talking to Aunt Betty or that guy at Hardy's who has a rather rough bike jacket on and talks like a truck driver and you're thinking, man, I don't think my witnessing went very far with him. Arguments are almost never one on the spot. In fact, the great debater William Rusher made this point. He said, you know when arguments are won? Two weeks later when that person you were talking to is alone with his or her thoughts in the drive through at McDonald's or Starbucks and they're alone in their car, and at that moment they admit to themselves that you rearrange their mental furniture. That's when the argument's won. Your job, as my colleague Greg Kokel says, is to put a pebble in people's shoe. Give them something to think about. Have you ever had a pebble in your shoe when you're out hiking? It wears on you and wears on you. I realize we're months away from you being able to hike up here in Michigan. You know, I saw the movie Frozen. I never thought I would experience it, but I have coming up here. Um, and I'm ready to let it go. I really am. Um, and you more so. But men and women, your job as a Christian ambassador is not to have all the answers. It's to clearly state what you believe in a grounded biblical worldview. Put that pebble in their shoe and let God do the work of bringing it to fruit. That's your job. You don't need to take on the task of closing the sale. Your job is to faithfully communicate biblical truth. That's what it means in this case, in our day and age, to speak up for those who are being led away to be slaughtered. I know that it seems overwhelming, and I know that you look at the culture around us, but I want to remind you in closing of a scene that I saw in the movie Schindler's List. I know many of you have seen the movie Schindler's List. For those of you that may not have seen it, it's the story of Oscar Schindler, who took his own money during World War II to buy Jews off the Nazi death camp commander's list. He'd go to the death camp commander and say, don't kill these Jews, I'll buy them from you. And he would use his money to purchase people off of the death list, and they would come to work in Oscar Schindler's factory, and he saved 1,100 Jews doing that. 
Well, near the end of the movie, there is a scene that those of you that have seen the movie know exactly what I'm talking about. And it is a scene that will tear you up every time. Oscar Schindler, now that the war is over, is saying goodbye to all the Jews he has ransomed with his own money. And he, he says to the Jewish leader, you know, the war is over. I'm going to depart now. And the Jewish leader presents him with a gift. And Oscar Schindler doesn't want to accept the gift. And he says to the Jewish leader, I didn't do enough. I don't deserve this gift. I could have got more people out and I didn't do it. And the leader of the Jewish people says, Oscar, there's 1,100 of us alive today because of what you did. And Oscar says, you don't understand. I could have got more people out. I didn't do it. I wasted so much money. I could have got more out and I didn't do it. I didn't do enough. And then Oscar looks at his car that's about to take him away. And he says, my car, why did I keep this car? They would have given me 10 more people for this car. He then looks at his jacket and on the lapel, he rips off a decorative pin and says, this pin, they would have given me two more people, at least one more for this pin, and I kept it. I could have got more out. I wasted so much money. I didn't do enough. And the scene ends with him weeping profusely, collapsing behind his car, saying over and over again, I didn't do enough. I could have got more out. And I know for us today, we look at what's happening in Michigan. We look at Proposal 3. We look at a culture that is increasingly going against what God prescribes in Scripture. In fact, the culture doesn't just think we're mistaken anymore. It thinks we're evil and dangerous. And it's tempting to think, I just want to go and hide. And I want to remind you that all of us in this room today have to ask this question. Are we taking our Holocaust today as seriously as Oscar Schindler took his in the 1940s. And it will be costly. It will not be easy. You will be ridiculed. And at that moment, you're going to have to decide, do I care about being a candidate who stands for truth and shouts witness for my king, or do I care what the world thinks about me? That's the gut check we're all going to have to have. And it's important that us, as biblically grounded Christians, are solid in what we believe and they communicate that to a world that's lost its moral compass you might be thinking a moment ago i would love to have that minute pro-life thing that you just did and you're thinking i couldn't keep up with that i would have had to take notes faster than broke people at a dave ramsey seminar to keep up with that i want you to know we're going to put a qr code up on the screen gentlemen i'm assuming we still have that from yesterday you can scan this QR code either now or at the end of the service, and it will take, within six minutes of scanning that code, you will have that one-minute thing on your phone. It's also in the book out there that I mentioned. But would you join me, and let's pray as we close our, our time together. Father in heaven, the issue of abortion is indeed particularly egregious because it involves one of your image makers, image bearers. And it is also true that it is particularly painful for people who've experienced it. I pray this morning that if there are any here today that have yet to be clothed in your righteousness, that today would be the day that they have faith in you, that you draw them to you and draw them to the Savior. I pray that anybody who is carrying guilt from a past abortion would take confidence in being clothed in the righteousness of Christ that they no longer need to look inside themselves for a solution for their blood guilt, but that you yourself have provided the atonement that is needed for that sin. 
I pray that you would bless this church. I thank you for the leadership of Pastor Tim and the team here that takes seriously the need to convey pro-life truth to this culture. We ask this for your son's sake. Amen.